In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And this series is in cooperation with Cinda Virtual, which brings you thought leaders and business stories from all over the world. Now, you can learn more about Cinda on www.cinda.org. Now, we don't just have thought leaders from all over the world, but we also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to the show, let me tell you what the show is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization, that digital transition, the connected world is having on our organization and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, digital transitions, and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance and business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your individual career. So please listen to us live every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Pacific time. And if you miss us live, don't worry about it because we're on every major podcast platform from Apple to Google to Stitcher to Spotify. Spotify, we're all over the web. I also invite you to connect with me. Please send me your thoughts and insights to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com and tell me what you want to hear about on this show. If you're a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless of your business, it's international or local, make sure you join us each week and we'll make sure you take away something useful for yourself, your business, or your career. Now on to what we're going to talk about today. So, February 24th. I think everybody knows that date. That is the date that Russia invaded the Ukraine. And in Europe, I can tell you, it dominates today, five months later, all the news almost every night. And there's a lot of support in the European Union around us. A lot of Ukrainians have fled to the EU and have integrated into the workforce. And many are waiting to return. At the same time, the U.S. has expanded its support to the Ukraine. But progress Maybe there is some, maybe there is none. It's hard for us really from the outside to understand what's going on. We see the devastation on TV. We read reports. We hear of Russians that speak up against the invasion, ending up in jails. The entire situation is still devastating. In March, right after the war began, we spoke with one of our most knowledgeable and repeat guests, Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. And today we'd like to catch up with him again to get his opinion on what the current situation in the Ukraine is and how it is affecting the world. Dr. Jeffrey McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy has worked with thousands of individuals and organizations across the world to help develop the next generation of leaders. His mission is to develop confident and effective leaders whose team have the greatest impact on their community and the world, having a vision of developing every leader and organization to their greatest potential. 
Since 2000, both domestically and internationally, Dr. McCausland has conducted numerous executive leadership development workshops for leaders in public education, government, nonprofit, and corporation. He is a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS Radio and Television. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools, and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He holds a master's and Ph.D. from Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, Tufts University, and he is also the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. So, Jeff, welcome back. Kimberly, it's wonderful to be back with you. Uh, You know, I mean, it's always so great to have you on the show. And um, the last time we talked was in March, okay? Um, And you gave some insights on what was happening in the Ukraine at that time. And now we're we're quite a few months later. Kim, can you give us kind of what's going on? What have been some of the successes on either side, you know, from the Russians to the Ukrainians? What's happening? Well, Kimberly, to kind of answer that question, I think you've got to go back to the start. And, of course, I think no one imagined this war would last now five months, hitting into the six months. But it all, I think, uh, from the Russian side at least, talking about success, you've got to also examine failure. And there were two great assumptions. All leaders make assumptions when they execute a plan. Mr. Putin made his at the very beginning that have shaped the Russian effort, success, and failure. And those two assumptions were first that the Russians would score a very quick military victory, the Ukrainians wouldn't fight very much, as the Russians had seen in 2014 when they seized seized Crimea and also Mm -hmm. fomented a rebellion in the eastern portion in the Donbass region. Well, that certainly turned out not to be true. And the second was that NATO would lack unity, NATO would be able to get its act together, uh, there'd be hit some histrionics in the aftermath of a successful invasion by the Russians, but NATO would not come together, and that certainly has not been true. In terms of success, however, one has got to realize that the Russians so far have downgraded their expectations initially with that big effort at the start along five avenues of advance. I think they thought they'd take the country down, uh, remove Mr. Zelensky, put somebody in charge more amenable to Moscow's desires, and that would happen in a matter of days. Uh, that five avenues of advance failed, and they were unable to take Kiev, unable to take Kharkiv. Uh, but they were able to secure a land bridge connecting Russia proper with Crimea along the Sea of Azov, very important to them, and take important ports like Mariupol, for example, after some very, very heavy fighting. They now also have concentrated their efforts primarily. Now the objective seems to be the Donbass, that region of southeastern mm-hmm. Ukraine, which is comprised by two provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk. And they have now been able to capture all of the Luhansk province in the last week or so and control about half of the uh, uh, Donetsk province. Also, the Russians have been able to, I think, withstand to some degree so far the economic pressure brought on uh, by the West. Uh, And though we have started to see, I think, cracks in how that will affect the Russian economy over time. On the Ukrainian side... You know, the primary success has been they survived. And most people, mm-hmm. I think, experts thought they would not be able to do that. They did drive the Russians away from that effort by Moscow to seize their capital, take down their government. And we've seen a dramatic unity of effort come about in the Ukraine. You know, Mr. Putin argued at the onset that Ukraine didn't really ad- exist as a culture, as a as a population. And, and I would argue Mr. Putin has done more for Ukrainian nationalism and unity in the last 150 days than probably anybody in the last two decades since Ukraine became a sovereign state. 
Furthermore, Mr. Zelensky, I think uh, by his efforts, has been key in galvanizing international support for the Ukraine, not only militarily, uh, but uh, politically. And that is translated into military, humanitarian, economic support, as well as political support to Ukraine. And then, of course, I think one success that can't go unmentioned is in the last week or two, we've had the European Union uh, announce that Ukraine would be accepted for candidate membership. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be admitted anytime soon, but that's a major step forward, I think, in identifying Ukraine as a European country and part of the European family of nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it is it is interesting because what you talk about these these Russians moving forward, but what we've seen with the Ukraines really coming together is incredible, and also the support from worldwide and NATO coming together, and just just from a leadership point of view, um, Jeff, you know, you said the Russians went in there with assumptions, and and that it has that kind of these kind of assumptions when it comes to leadership, that that kind of has made a crack in their plans and. And what can we learn from that? Well, again, all leaders have assumptions. And when they execute a strategy, I always argue, whether I'm talking to a corporation, a not-for-profit, or whatever, that as you create a strategy, you have to sit back and say, okay, what are my implicit and explicit assumptions that undergird this particular strategy? And like I said, for Mr. Putin, he made those two false assumptions, which really has cost him uh, dramatically. As a consequence, I think he is in a bit of a, uh, a bit of a problem now in that now he has got to find something that he can go back to the Russian population and describe as success. But as because of those assumptions and the poor performance, really, of the Russian military, what we have seen is, by uh, British MOD estimates, probably up to 25,000 soldiers on the Russian side killed in action, 50,000 more wounded, captured, missing, etc. Well, that's, that's 75,000 casualties in about four to five months, which are enormous. This is like mm. one half of the entire attack force that he invaded the country with, or about 20% of the standing army uh, of the Russian Federation. And so that puts him in a difficult proposition for the future in time to galvanize manpower uh, domestically to continue that particular offensive. Now, at the same time, we can't be sanguine. Uh, certainly, the Ukrainians have suffered grievous casualties of their own. and They admit to 100 to 200 casualties per day. So now the war is settling into what I would call a contest of wills, which ultimately is what a, what a uh, war is all about. And the lesson for any leader is when you execute a strategy, uh, even in business, the willpower of the leader, t- t- determination and resilience are going to be key to his or her organization achieving success. Mm-hmm. And we've seen, you know, we've seen with this power of wills, okay, we've seen the support for the Ukraine, as you just said, with the EU, accepting them for candidacy, and then we've seen the, the humanitarian, the economic support, um, but military support, you know, we've kind of, you know, NATO, we've all stayed out of that because of the fact that, that you know, the risk of actually starting World War Three or a nuclear situation resulting. Um, how does that weigh in discussion or reality? Um, do, do you think that the, the Russians have the capability of that? Well, certainly the Russians have the capability to escalate to the use of nuclear weapons. And I think we have to be very clear-eyed that this particular crisis has brought us to perhaps the greatest nuclear crisis that the West has experienced since the crude missile crisis in, in 1962. And we can't, we can't forget that. You know, we could see one mistake, an aircraft crosses the border and is shot down, a missile goes astray and hits a NATO country, two ships collide in the night in the Black Sea, and we have potentially a Sarajevo moment 
uh, whereby the West could be in a direct nuclear confrontation with the Russians. Or the Russians, for example, as many have been concerned, deciding that their military fortunes have not gone well and escalate to the use of nuclear weapons in an effort to try to get the Ukrainians to capitulate. At the same time, I think we have to be concerned by what I would call horizontal escalation, even outside of the nuclear realm. Could the Russians go to a large-scale cyber attack against a, a Western country? Well, they certainly could, to include the United States. There has been some evidence that, in fact, they have executed a cyber attack against Lithuania in the dust-up between Russia and Lithuania over transit by Russian trains moving across Lithuanian territory to connect with uh, Kaliningrad, the Kaliningrad Oblast, which is surrounded by Poland and, and Lithuania. So they could also escalate horizontally. And we can't lose sight of those things. And clearly, I think what the West and the Biden administration has been trying to do is thread the needle you kind of described, Kimberly, and that is how can we provide the maximum political and military support to Ukraine while at the same time not tipping this into that major nuclear potential confrontation with the Russian Federation. Mm, yeah. Um, and what about, what about sanctions? I mean, that's one of the other things we're doing. Do you think that the, the sanctions are really helping to bring this war to a conclusion? I think the sanctions are very, very important. They certainly have not had the immediate effect, maybe some people had hoped, but sanctions take a long period of time. Mm, yeah. There's certainly some clear evidence it's having an effect on the Russian economy. There's talk about scarcity of some goods already in Moscow. There's talk about uh, the Moscow mayor, for example, saying that Moscow itself would suffer a loss of 200,000 jobs. You've had 600 corporations uh, leave the Russian Federation. And most economists estimate that the GDP uh, of Russia uh, will drop somewhere around uh, 10 percent or more uh, for the coming year. But Mr. Putin has made every effort to tighten down any possibility of dissent across the country, and the Duma has passed laws whereby if you were to tweet that Russia was actually at war in the Ukraine, you could get a sentence of up to 15 years. And we've seen several dissidents actually put on trial. And I think also, I think we have to keep in mind that though Mr. Putin seems steadfast, he has shown, I think, a concern for that possibility of domestic social unrest back in Russia. For example, he has not taken a step many thought he would, and that's mobilize Russian forces, call up his reserve, expand the draft, as he suffered the significant casualties I mentioned a minute ago, in order to provide manpower for what looks like now to be a long, sustained, grinding conflict that may go on for months ahead. Yeah, good. Well, we're going to take a short break, Jeff. When we come back, um, you know, we're kind of getting a picture now about what's going on. When we come back, I, I want to talk about the motivation. Uh, we talked about that in March a little bit, um, and I'd like to you know, kind of go back to this core motivation because, as you said, everybody was surprised. I mean, maybe we saw it, maybe you should have seen it, but, you know, what's driving Putin here? And so for our guests today, we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. He's a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. He has conducts workshops on leadership, both domestically and internationally, and he is also a a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. He's also the co-author of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Diamond 6, you can go to www.diamond6.com and that's six with six spelled out. 
and you can look him up. And you can also go to Diamond Six on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and Twitter. And Diamond Six on Facebook is with six, the letter. And on Twitter, it's Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, D6 Leadership and Instagram, D6 Leadership. So you can find Diamond Six Leadership all over the web and also on their website. Now, this broadcast is also brought to you by Cinder, one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. Cinder holds virtual trainings, conferences, market research, and legislative white papers focused on digital. Please go to www.cinder.org for more information. And they also hold conferences, and their next conference is going to be in Florence, Italy, October 16th to 18th. And if you want to meet Jeffrey, you can meet him uh, in Florence, where he will be giving a presentation to the Cinda audience. And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Defeat the Chaos with Corey Harris and Julie Traxler hits on topics every week that affect small business owners across this country. They provide insights that show entrepreneurs how to reduce stress, wear fewer hats, and work shorter hours. Take your business from being owner-dependent and stagnant to growth-ready and process-driven every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. 
Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and a former dean of academics at the U.S. Army Raw College. And he is also the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. Uh, he has, does executive leadership training all over the world, and he's trained and consulted for leaders in public education, U.S. government, nonprofit, and corporation. And he is also the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. And uh, Jeffrey's a pretty regular guest on our show, and we talked to him in March when the Ukrainian war started, and we wanted to catch up with him now to see, uh, you know, what's going on and and what his view on everything is. Now, um, Jeff, in in March, we kind of talked about motivation, okay? And, you know, we were all surprised on February 24th when this happened. And, um, you know, do we have insights into Putin's motivation? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, I think if we go back to 2005, then President Vladimir Putin gives a speech to the Russian people. And in that speech, he says, you know, the greatest catastrophe uh, geopolitically of the 21st century was the end of the Soviet Union. Now, we kind of shrugged our shoulders when he said that, but I think he really means that. I always found it curious because, remember, the Soviet Union had 26 million military and civilian dead in the Second World War. But still, for Mr. Putin, the greatest tragedy of the 20th, 20th century was the end of the Soviet Union. And he has pursued, I think, a strategy to um, basically bring back together the Soviet Union, not necessarily establish it as a single state, but at least you control over those particular countries that would have comprised the Soviet Union or, if you will, the Russian Empire. So what did he do? Well, in 2008, we know he invaded Georgia and seized two provinces, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which are still occupied by Russian forces. Even prior to that, even prior to that declaration, uh, Russian troops had occupied, uh, since the end of the Soviet Union, <clears throat> the eastern side of Moldova in a place called Transnistria, and Russian forces still remain in that particular part of that country uh, to this very day. Then, of course, after 2008, what does he do? Well, he interferes in uh, Western elections. He interfered in Brexit. We know, he, of course, by U.S. intelligence analysis, he interfered in U.S. elections in an effort to try to sow disunity between the United States and its NATO allies. And then in 2014, what does he do? Well, of course, he invades uh, Crimea, seizes that particular piece of territory from uh, Ukraine, and at the same time, foments a rebellion in Luhansk and Donetsk, those two provinces we talked about in the preceding hour, uh, that uh, had, had been going on since 2014. So for Ukrainian, if you ask them how the war's going, uh, they would talk to you about what happened since 2014, that initial invasion, and, and 14,000 uh, particular uh, Ukrainians have died in the process. So beginning back with that initial declaration of what he was trying to accomplish, what we've seen with Mr. Putin is really a Russian revanchism. This is not about communism and an ideology. This is about Russian nationalism and the, the place of Russia in the world Mr. Putin thinks it should rightfully have. And it's interesting, in the last couple of uh, weeks, he has even compared himself in a speech to Peter the Great. Peter the Great being one who expanded the, the size of the Russian uh, Empire. And he's compared himself to Peter the Great. 
And for the viewers, many of them may have seen this scene of Mr. Putin in this large hall in the Kremlin speaking to his senior cabinet members, and they're all sitting on chairs like schoolboys, while he, 20 feet away, is sitting behind this rather ornate desk. Well, in that particular room, I'm told by colleagues, are statues of Catherine the Great, statues of Peter the Great, statue of uh, the Tsar Nicholas I, Alexander II, who makes his way all the way to Paris, and these great czars and great leaders uh, of, of the Russian Empire. And, of course, I'm sure there's a space reserved amongst those statues for one more statue, and we all know what that statue might look like. <laughs> so I, I think the motivation for Mr. Putin is this idea of Russia's place in history, that idea that he espoused back in 2005 uh, when he described the collapse of the Soviet Union as, as the greatest uh, catastrophe of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, Russians' place in history or his place in history, I would say. Um, but, uh, um, Jeff, you know, do you think, it, you know, Crimea in 2014, Georgia in 2018, did we kind of um, not pay attention or look the other way? Yeah, I think we certainly did. I think we, we certainly believed and hoped that there was a, where, a way whereby we could establish a relationship with Russia that, that was going to be positive. You know, Mr. Putin would describe this crisis as really being a derivative of the uh, NATO's enlargement at the end of the Cold War, and that he would say that the West lied to Russia about that we would never enlarge NATO. Now, I've done some research on that, and that, and that is totally untrue. The only thing that we formally promised in, in, in terms of an actual treaty or agreement or memorandum was not to position uh, NATO forces in the former East Germany. That was part of the agreements whereby Germany reunified. But beyond that, NATO was always uh, a, a, an organization that democratic states could apply to join. And of course, we saw this dramatic movement of former Warsaw Pact states, ostensibly allies of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, now all joining NATO. But the Russians perceived that as a threat as that particular alliance moved closer and closer uh, to Russian borders. And I think to some degree, people might look back and say the, the effort to manage that new relationship between the West, NATO, and a future Russia in an amicable fashion, we tried by certain mechanisms by adjusting the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe. We tried by having a NATO-Russia council as part of NATO. But those things really failed to satisfy uh, Mr. Putin, uh, and we continue to try that. Uh, when these particular crises occurred in Georgia in 2008 and again in Crimea in 2014. But I think clearly now, uh, with the invasion of Ukraine, that has failed. And what we're really witnessing, I think, uh, Kimberly, more broadly, is, you know, we created a, a security architecture for Europe at the end of World War II with the creation of NATO and subsequently the Warsaw Pact. That collapsed with the end of the Soviet Union and the end of the Warsaw Pact. We had to create a new architecture in the 1990s. That included NATO enlargement and things like that. That has now collapsed. Mr. Putin has now destroyed that security architecture, which includes arms control as well. And now in the aftermath of this war, whenever it comes to an end, there's got to be a creation not only of a new Ukraine, but a new security architecture, which hopefully will then establish a longer period of peace and stability in Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, that's for sure. And, you know, here here in Europe, Jeff, because I, I, I kind of lived through this living here and, you, you know, also have ties to Ukraine and you're talking about the Russian nationalism. OK, but the Ukraine Ukrainians are Ukrainians. And and when you talk about this expansion of territory and the and in comparison to Peter the Great, OK, um, 
if we don't get this stopped, are we at risk? I mean, you look at Hungary, look at Slovakia, Czech Republic. I mean, they were all part of, you know, the this Soviet bloc before. Okay, um, you know, countries are getting nervous. Okay, um, you know, I don't think you know they're part of the European Union. Um, but do you think his thoughts are if I make this happen, I can go further? Yeah, I think without question. I think he believes right now, in the short term at least, for the next six to eight months to a year, that his patience and willpower is far superior to that of the West and that support for Ukraine will crack over time based on rising cost, inflation, shortages of energy, changes in political leadership in European countries or, or in the United States. And if he is successful, of course, this will not only undermine the credibility of NATO, but it will really uh, undermine the whole rule-based international system that we're part of. And those countries you mentioned should be increasingly concerned about their individual security. More broadly, this, I think, would encourage aggression uh, around the globe. Very clearly, the people in Beijing are watching very carefully to see if the Russians can secure Ukraine and make that a sphere of influence because of the longstanding desire on the part of the Chinese to reassert control over the Taiwan. So if Putin was to get away with this, that will certainly encourage them, as it would many, many places around the globe. And, you know, clearly for European countries, when one says, well, which ones should be particularly concerned, obviously the frontline states, mm -hmm. those countries that have borders uh, with the Russian Federation should be of particular concern. Very clearly the Baltic republics come to mind because they, mm -hmm. were, part, they were part of the Soviet Union but always maintained, uh, even in the uh, aftermath of the end of the Soviet Union, that they were never really part of the Soviet Union but were occupied states. And they, uh, they emphasized that when the Soviet Union would come to a close. But Peter the Great, obviously, once again, occupied the Baltic republics. And I'm sure that comparison Mr. Putin made to uh, Peter the Great was not, not lost on people living in places like Riga and Tallinn and mm -hmm. Vilnius when that particular uh, statement was made. And furthermore, of course, uh, if you are... Uh, living in a place like Moldova, very, a very small, impoverished country, which is a frontline state, borders the Russian Federation. Uh, you've got to be concerned about this as well because of that presence of Russian forces. And the Moldovans don't enjoy, uh, to any degree, protection as being a NATO member, which they are not, yep. uh, nor are they a member uh, of the European Union. Mm. But, but on the other side of the coin, you know, it's very interesting when you talk about the threats to countries uh, in the region. Uh, one thing has also happened in the last few weeks, of course, Kimberly, was this very important NATO summit. And NATO has now enlarged again, ostensibly. And mm -hmm. what has NATO happened? Well, we've added two new countries. We've added Swinland, Sweden and we've added Finland. Uh, this extends the border of NATO that it shares with the Russian Federation by about 850 miles because of the Finnish uh, border uh, with NATO. Um, but what, again, Mr. Putin has managed to do along with enhancing Ukrainian nationalism, is his efforts over the last couple of months have ended 200 years of Swedish neutrality and about five decades of German pacifism. And you know that far better than I do, having yeah. lived, lived in Europe. Yeah. It's furthermore made the Baltic Sea up there really into a NATO lake, which, trust me, uh, Russian naval planners, I'm sure, are very concerned about. Yeah. No. Yes. The, I mean, that was a, a nice welcome with Finland and Sweden. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I can see it and we are scared. I mean, I, I live, you know, people, I see Czech Republic, Slovenia, Slovakia, um, well, 
Moldavia, you know, um, it's 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 interesting, and people are on edge. And and Jeff, let me ask you this, okay? Before we take a break, so you know, we got Putin doing this with these visions of grandeur, this Peter the Great, okay? And you made a quick comment before I heard you say you know, he was sitting at the desk and everybody else was sitting in chairs like schoolboys, okay? Is he, you know, does he have a huge really support unit or is he really kind of alone and people are just afraid not you know they have to follow him i mean do you do we have any insights onto the the real connection there yeah i, th- I think publicly we don't know as much about what's going on as russia as many people would like but by polls that you can in some degree um look at uh, there are the suggestions that 70% of the population support what Mr. Putin is doing. And, of course, Russian TV is replete mm-hmm. with uh, stories about Nazis in, in Ukraine, even though the president of Ukraine happens to be Jewish. Uh, and that's what this is all about, ending Nazism. And we saw Mr. Putin give this very dramatic speech in May on Victory Day, in which he tried very desperately, I think, to link the ongoing conflict in Ukraine with the Great Patriotic War, World War II, which was this mm-hmm thing they talk about so much, and he tried to instill in people's minds in Russia that the sacrifices they're making today are just like their grandparents made back during the Great Patriotic War when 26 million uh, Russians, Soviets, were were killed in that particular struggle. And, of course, he's also making very many efforts to, to, as I said before, you know, cramp down on any kind of dissent that might occur between the population over this particular conflict uh, in Ukraine. But then, of course, is he alone? Well, uh, not really. I mean, the, there are people around him who support this conflict, the so-called Siloviki, not the oligarchs. Many people would say, well, the oligarchs, the people who spent all this money, they're the ones that are important. And I, I would say, well, no, initially they might have been uh, important to, to Putin. They were sort of the GoFundMe group mm-hmm. when Putin came to power. But they're really not that influential right now, I think, in Putin's thinking, and they may stand to lose dramatically because there's a push on many people's mind that we ought to take the funds that we've impounded in Western banks from the oligarchs or from the Russian government writ large and use that money to help rebuild the Ukraine in the aftermath of this conflict. But the people around Putin himself, the so-called Siloviki, and many of those were people that he served with in the KGB. Don't forget, you know, Mr. Putin was a rather mediocre lieutenant colonel in the KGB in the embassy in East Berlin when the wall comes down, makes his way up to becoming the the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg and eventually the president of the Russian Federation. And he's kept those same guys around him, people like Mr. Petrushev, who is his uh, national security advisor. And they certainly support this particular effort. But that's being said, uh, is there the possibility, at least, that over time this could crack? And I think it's certainly the possibility, particularly in the military. I mean, I think there's more and more signs of it becoming increasingly difficult to man the effort. Russian efforts now to hire mercenaries from Syria, Russia, uh, the Russian government actually levying on some of the non-Russian ethnic provinces to create battalions, however they could, to, to provide manpower. So I'm sure in the army right now, there's a real concern of will the army actually be able to maintain this or could the army crack? And then more broadly around the world, does he have support? Well, he has the Chinese on his side. And there are some reports now the Chinese providing uh, some technology to him. And it's a worry. And I think one of the things Mr. Biden is talking about when he made his trip to Saudi Arabia and the Middle East is support politically uh, with the West uh, against Russia because of this aggression. You know, if you take the top 10 countries by population, 
Kimberly. Uh, the only t- uh, one country that opposes Russian formally in UN and elsewhere uh, is the United States. Uh, places like India, places like Indonesia, mm. places like even Israel or Brazil, for that matter, have attempted to be somewhat neutral about this particular aggression. Uh, and that is a point of concern for the West. And I certainly something I think Mr. Putin may take some solace on uh, as he continues this war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a point of concern. And Jeffrey, we're going to take a short break now. Um, and, um, you know, it's really interesting talking about the motivation and trying to understand this. And when we come back, um, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about actually what's going on there. You know, our war crimes going on there. And I want to talk about the economic impact. And for our listeners, our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. He's a retired colonel from the U.S. Army, former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War School. And he is the founder of and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And if you'd like to learn about Diamond Six, please go to www.diamond6, and that's spelled out, S. Ix.com. Uh, he does workshops and consults governments, public education, nonprofit organizations, and corporations, helping them become more effective leaders. He's also the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. You can also reach Jeffrey on LinkedIn and on Twitter. He's also on Twitter. And Diamond Six is on Facebook under Diamond Six, this time with the number six leadership and on LinkedIn under Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, on uh, Twitter under Diamond Six Leadership, and on Instagram under D6 Leadership. And this series is also brought to you by Cinda. Cinda is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. You can learn more about Cinda on www.cinda.org. And Cinda conducts conferences, and they'll be holding a conference October 16th to 18th in Florence, Italy, where Dr. McCausland will be giving a presentation and talking to the audience. And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Everyone deserves the opportunity to have access to the knowledge to make their own choices when it comes to where their money goes. Listening to Making More Money for You with Magnus Carter will give you that access. Investing isn't just for the wealthy. Making more money for you. Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in for And Security for All, hosted by Kim Hakem. Each week, we look into a different aspect of cybersecurity, which is important to know for anyone who is involved with the Internet daily, which is probably all of us. We take the technical jargon and make it easier to understand while helping you to identify weaknesses and issues in your own cybersecurity and fix them now. And Security for All is broadcast live every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Connect with us and we'll connect with you. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on LinkedIn. Get the first word about happenings with the network, where our next live event will be, and what's up with our hosts. Look up Voice America on LinkedIn. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and a former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He is also the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership. And Diamond Six does leadership training and workshops for leaders in public education, government institutions, nonprofits, and corporations. And... uh, Jeff is a regular guest on our show, and we talked to you back in March, Jeffrey, and um, and we wanted to get your update on the whole situation in the Ukraine. So that's what we've been talking about. Um, great insights into the motivation, you know, what's happening out there. And I have I have one pressing question, because every time I watch the news here in Europe, I, I really just can't believe what's happening. And, you know, do we really believe, and if we do believe it or we don't believe it, is, is Russia really committing war crimes as they attack civilian targets right now? Absolutely, without without question, in my particular mind. I think it's hard for people in the West to wrap their head around uh, a country actually targeting civilians willfully as part of their military doctrine. But what's occurred has not been accidents, has not been mistargeting, it's not been the efforts of uh, renegade units. This is a formal part of Russian military doctrine. We can look in the last couple of days, Kimberly. I mean, on Friday morning, uh, yeah. we know that two universities were struck in the city of Mykolaiv by as, as many as 10 missiles. And the day before, a Russian cruise missile attack uh, also struck a city called uh, Venitsia, about 170 miles south of Kiev, and a, and a significant number of civilians were killed in that particular effort. The Russians talked about this when they invaded Chechnya in the late 1990s about a sort of a scorched earth policy. And, you know, basically, you know, killing civilians as having the natural positive effect militarily of securing your rear areas. You don't have to worry about, about your rear areas of the territory you occupy. Breaking the willpower of the, of the civilian population is a key ingredient to o- overall success. And creating a wave of refugees, which, of course, have to go over onto your adversary and become a problem for your adversary. And we've seen that in Ukraine, where there are probably a total of 13 million uh, or more Ukrainian refugees or displaced people in the country. So there's no de- doubt in my mind that the attacks that the Russians are conducting uh, are war crimes. They have no connection to any military operation when you hit a, 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 a city hundreds of miles away from the Donbass in terms of trying to secure territory as part of your ongoing military operations. Yeah. And, I mean, just... Is there anything we can, I mean, we're sitting here, we're trying to give the support to the Ukraine. I mean, maybe, you know, hopefully this will end soon. Um, Do you think it's realistic they're ever going to 
actually end up paying for these war crimes? Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult. We may see individual soldiers. There already have been some prosecutions of individual soldiers because we now have this advanced technology where we can actually get video of these atrocities occurring from drones or even satellites. And, and then if a soldier is captured, he or she could be prosecuted. And that's already occurred. Whether we'll ever see Mr. Putin himself in the dock as being the guy or senior leaders from Russia who directed this particular uh, effort, I think is much more problematical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. So, I mean, all this is going on and, you know, we're watching this from, from outside, from, you know, from Europe or from the U.S. Um, and it's having a huge economic impact on, you know, from from wheat. And I actually went into a grocery store the other day in Europe and um, surprisingly enough, enough, the spaghetti aisle was half empty, to be honest with you, okay, and to gas, okay. So, you know, I mean, do you think we – we're way too dependent on on Russia um, or, you know, on, especially in the gas situation, our resources. You know, did we kind of look the other way? Yeah, I think uh, hindsight's always clear cut in 2020. Uh, but what would happen, and I think Mrs. Merkel, as Chancellor of Germany, was one of the leaders of this, is try to t- tie together economically Russia with, with Europe. And to do so, that was one mechanism to create a positive relationship, which would dampen down some of these long-term Russian security anxieties uh, when the Soviet Union came to close. And we have to say, at least with the leadership of Mr. Putin, uh, that effort has failed. You know, that also occurred in combination with, with a couple other things that happened. The Fukushima nuclear disaster, which was in Japan, and somebody said, well, what's that got to do with Europe? Well, what it meant was, particularly in Germany and Central Europe, uh, was a movement away from nuclear power, and German mm-hmm. governments decided to close down all their nuclear power plants. Now, there's some report that they're revisiting that now. It's odd if you compare Germany with France, for example. The French still depend on nuclear energy for about 70% of their electricity. So while they're going to suffer somewhat as well, if there was a total close-off of natural gas and oil from Russia, they won't suffer as severely. But there's no question about the diversification of energy supplies uh, is something that has left us in a difficult situation. As the price of oil has soared, uh, the Russians right now are making more money off of the sale of oil than they did a year ago. Even though they're selling less oil, the price per barrel is higher. And over time, of course, this is going to change things geostrategically. Countries like Qatar, for example, will become more and more important. German government has already approached the Qataris about expanding the flow of natural gas and perhaps creating more sites on German ports to offload natural gas being delivered uh, from Qatar. One of the main reasons Mr. Biden made his trip to Saudi Arabia and spoke to the Gulf Cooperative Council was because of the concern over energy and can they do more to expand the flow of energy to try to dampen down shortages that are naturally going to concern uh, as we try to move away from, in Europe, a dependency on uh, Russian oil and natural gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Europe and Germany was especially very, very dependent on that. And I know we don't have a crystal ball. OK. Um, but, you know, we're five months into this. OK. We're seeing the you are seeing the economic impact, um, which will continue. Um, what what do you think? Do you have any prognosis or visions on, on what could be the possible scenarios in the next six months? Well, there are several scenarios. One would be that potential nuclear confrontation, as we said before. That, you know, we can't ignore that. Something could occur that could cause that to uh, tensions to rise between the West and Russia. 
Second thing is we could go into kind of a, uh, a frozen conflict where there could be some effort to negotiate, which we were doing from 2014 on over these so-called separatist provinces. But those might break down with some fighting and then renew good negotiations and that kind of <clears throat> grind on in a, in a frozen conflict. And that's not impossible. And I think we could see <clears throat> this just grind on as a conflict goes with continued having severe economic consequences uh, beyond Russia uh, and beyond Ukraine. Uh, just think of the food crisis. I mean, 22 million tons of Ukrainian grain are stuck in ports right now, mm. which has a dramatic impact across the Middle East, places like Egypt, Sudan, the Congo, Eritrea, and Tunisia, uh, let alone places like Yemen or Afghanistan, are, are going to be in terribly difficult straits if that particular grain is not exported. But even if that grain was exported tomorrow, Ukrainian production for this coming summer, 2022, will be at best 50% of what it was in 2021. So the longer-term impact on the globe for food is going to be a very, very significant. And there are already global forecasts of a downturn in the overall economic outlook for the globe as a whole. And then finally, I think one thing that Western leaders are going to have to grapple with is we're, we're now back to, believe it or not, industrial warfare. You know, the focus uh, after 9-11 was either counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, or after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, so-called hybrid war, short, very short uh, military operations coupled with perhaps efforts in cyber or efforts in outer space or disinformation warfare, the com combination of those things. We're, we're now back to industrial warfare. The concern is such things as how many artillery shells do you have and how many artillery shells can you produce and maintain over time? Uh, the Russian Federation, uh, some people estimate, are expending 60,000 artillery rounds a day, and the wow. Ukrainians may be 6,000. So as we think about maintaining support for Ukraine, can the industry of the West uh, be expanded significantly and rapidly to create uh, uh, the uh, arsenal of democracy that we had in World War II to maintain support for Ukraine. Well, at the same time, we have to also be concerned. Uh, we, the United States and our allies, have to maintain our own individual war stockpiles for some contingency that might be happening somewhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's the question, okay, as we're coming to the end of our show now, um, you know, what can we do? Okay, what, what do you think, you know, if you had a message to the governments, what can we do and, and what can we do as an in, individuals um, going forward over the next few months? Well, I think the number one thing we can do over the next few months is to come to the very solid realization that this is about us. Mm -hmm. It's not about them, the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are firing, fighting a war, I would argue, for democracy and for a world based on some degree of international norms. And if that particular struggle fails and if the Russians are, su are successful, then the kind of aggression we talked about a little while ago uh, become a lot more, a lot more possible. Uh, to reiterate, Mr. Putin is clearly at this moment banking on the fact that his patience, his willpower is far stronger than ours. And as he looks across Europe right now, he may be somewhat satisfied. Uh, Boris Johnson, for all his faults, uh, has left being the prime minister of Great Britain, held in very high esteem uh, in Ukraine. Uh, there's a belief that whoever succeeds Johnson will continue that support, but that's somewhat problematical at the moment. We've seen Mr. Macron lose his majority for his party uh, in the French parliament and suggestions that his popularity may be down in, in the 30% mark, about where it was during the height of, of COVID. And we've seen Prime Minister Draghi uh, of Italy 
announced that he may well resign, causing a political turmoil uh, in, in Italy. And I think Mr. Putin sees all those things and says, people in Europe, people in the West are more worried about the price of gasoline, the price of pasta, uh, the price of energy writ large, uh, than they are on supporting Ukrainians in a place that's far, far away. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important message you're giving here as an individual. This is about democracy. It is about world freedom. And, and you know, as an individual, you know, we sit here kind of – I sit here in my house in, in Germany. You're sitting in your house in the U.S. Um, you know, I, sometimes I feel like there's nothing that as an individual I can do. So, I mean, if you're talking to individuals, we know what we have governments, we have leaders. What – what could I, what can I do? You know, well, I, th- I think you, what you can do is, you know, remind your friends and colleagues that that's, that's what this is all about. A- as will normally come up in any conversation with friends is ongoing concerns for what this is all about and, and remind them that this is about us and not about them. And furthermore, of course, it, it means as we see elections coming up that we demand that our political leaders, uh, as mm-hmm. they move ahead, that we demand that they support uh, these things that are necessary to be done. You know, in Germany, for example, where you're at right now, it's, to me, still an open question. Uh, Mr. Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor of Germany, uh, very surprisingly to many people, uh, announced the closure of the Nord Stream pipeline, which I thought was a very courageous call on the part of a new German government. He then, secondly, announced the so-called Zeitwende, a change in direction, a dramatic change in direction uh, in German defense and foreign policy, calling for uh, the investment of hundreds of billions of dollars, or hundred billions of euros, I should say, uh, in expanded German defense. In Germany, for the first time in an awful long time, exceeding 2% of its GDP for defense. Well, that was a wonderful statement. Uh, his ability to sustain that over time will be a reflection of the German population's willingness to do so, and the German population's willingness to vote for uh, members of whatever political party that might be in a coalition uh, that would support that. And as yeah. we move ahead, we'll see uh, this translated as well into votes that have to happen in every parliament, as well as the United States Senate, which further ratify the uh, inclusion of places like Sweden and uh, Finland into Norway or into NATO. NATO That's not yeah. not been accomplished yet until those particular nations, our nations of, Euro, of the, uh, NATO, all vote. And support for that in those parliaments will be key in sending a message to Mr. Putin that the West is standing together. Yeah, and I think that's the key message. And it's up to all of us. And Jeff, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you. And I, we've been talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. He's a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and a former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, and he trains leaders from all over the world, leaders in uh, public education, government institutions, nonprofit profit and corporations. He's also a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. He's a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools and Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And he holds a master's and a Ph.D. from Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And he's also the author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. Now, if you'd like to reach out to Jeff, you can reach out to him on www.diamond6.com. And that's 
six spelled out, S-I-X. And you can reach him, uh, Jeffrey McCausland, on LinkedIn. And you can also learn more about Diamond Six on Facebook under Diamond Six, this time with the with the number, Leadership, Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, and D6 Leadership on Twitter. So please reach out to him. And Jeff, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Kimberly, it's always wonderful with you, and I wish you very well in the rest of the summer. Yes, and you too, and our guests also. We wish all our guests a great summer, and tune in every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time. And with that, thank you. Goodbye. Till next week. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.